Okay, so welcome to another interview for the Zero to Asic Course YouTube channel. And I'm very happy today to be joined by Ed Conway. How are you doing, Ed? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So for people who don't know who you are, maybe you can give us a little bit of a uh, background about you. Yeah, so, so I, my day job is I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm the economics and data uh, editor at Sky News. Uh, I also write a fair bit in various newspapers. Um, and yeah, I kind of um, like, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm not the, you know, the, the obvious expected person to be to be kind of writing about uh, stuff like semiconductors, but but randomly because I wrote this book just recently called Material World, which is trying to look at the world from various unusual perspectives of how we get stuff out of the ground and turn it into amazing things, then uh, semiconductors became, you know, a big part, a big obsession of mine for, for a little while. But I'm kind of like an, I'm, I'm an interested amateur rather than an expert like yourself. Yes, although uh, you did get quite a lot of great access, which I think is very interesting. So you visited some of these sites, didn't you? Yeah, well, that's the nice thing about being a journalist is that people often let you in. Although the interesting thing, again, with semiconductors is that, that people are kind of understandably a little bit nervous about, about having visitors because this is a really contested industry, secrecy. you know, and there's, yeah. there's so much secrecy and, and, mm -hmm. you know, you know that. And, and when, so when you go in, uh, there are certain bits they might want to show you and might not want to show you and certain bits they might want, not want to talk about. And that's kind of, to me, one of the interesting things about this is that, you know, the, the modern age as we know it is, is kind of built on these little marvels of engineering in our pockets. But being able to make them is, is, is incredibly difficult and being able to make the materials that go into them is really difficult as well. And so that's one of the things I kind of wanted to try to uh, to, to talk about, I think it's one of the most in, incredible things that humankind has ever achieved um, to, to be able to, to produce nanotechnology and not just do it in the lab. That's the interesting thing. You're doing it yeah. so, the, so the billions hold Re these things in their pockets. Yeah. Yeah. With repeatability yeah, and scale. And as you've shown, you know, when, when you go to a fab, it's about, it's about the yield. You know, it's about how many chips, how many chips you're actually getting out of each wafer that actually work is a mm. manufacturing process. Um, we kind of forget that, and I think I think a lot of the, the the big message of this book, which is partly about semiconductors, is, is one big chapter. Is basically um, we kind of think that things just kind of turn up. You know, we take it for granted. We think we live in this slightly ethereal universe where you know all that matters is kind of having a good idea. But actually, being able to make stuff, being able to take stuff, turn it from inert pieces of stone into something amazing, is is a, pretty extraordinary. B, it's often very energy intensive, so it involves quite a lot of carbon emissions along the way. Uh, and C, you know, we, we to some extent have just outsourced a lot of that to other countries around the world, and therefore we're starting to lose our capability of, of, of doing this stuff ourselves in much of the, the, the West. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it, is, it is a very interesting kind of moment right now. And semiconductors are right at the heart of, you know, geopolitics and, and that is kind of unsettling for a lot of people working in the field but it's also kind of it's also really exciting yeah so i want to um touch on that a little bit later on but let's get started with um your book so material world the first chapter so i, re I really recommend if you've not checked it out then check out the book it's it's really good um and the first chapter is all about sand <laughs> yes 
and not just semiconductors. There's also a very interesting part on making uh, concrete and cement, all these things that also yes. depend on sand. Yes. And glass, but, uh, glass, which yeah. is so fascinating as well. Yeah. And you say in the book that um, glass is the oldest thing that humans have made. And mm. semiconductors are like the newest, most cutting edge thing that humans make. Yeah. So I think there's, yeah. there's um, this, this nice journey. And one of the things that I learned from your book is that, in fact, we don't start from sand. There's a lot of these videos on YouTube that's like sand to silicon, but actually you can't use sand because it uh, messes up the smelting process. So yeah. in your book, you start off with this mine in uh, Spain, where I'm based at mm -hmm. the moment. Um, and we're, we're like mining a very, very pure um, quartz, right? Yeah, that's right. So, so I wanted to uh, not just, in, in trying to tell the story of how we make stuff, you know, I wanted to take my, my smartphone and just literally understand physically where the, where, where the, the silicon actually came out of the ground. And I went and talked to a lot of people within the silicon, you know, with the, within the semiconductor world, people who work in fabs and so on, chip design, the whole thing, and kind of asked a lot of them, well, okay, it's all very interesting. And, you know, I do want to understand about FinFETs and, and, you know, two nanometer processes and all of this. But I also kind of just want to understand where the silicon comes from. And a lot of people would just say, oh, it's just sand. And then I spoke to kind of, I kind of tried to go trace that journey through from the quarry, wherever this supposed sand comes out of the ground, all the way through to it becoming a, a silicon wafer through to then when it enters the fab. And the, mm. the startling thing was like, actually, as far as I could work out, no one had tried to do that before. Um, and a lot of people I spoke to along this supply chain didn't really have the foggiest about what was going on at the other end of it. So it turns out, as you say, when you're making silica, metallurgical silicon, which is the precursor to polysilicon, which is itself the precursor to making the silicon wafer, uh, there's loads of stages, it turns out. Uh, and it's complex and it's kind of amazing even before you get to the, to the semiconductor foundry. Um, but, you know, when, when you're kind of taking that metallurgical silicon, when you're making it, you can't just put sand into the furnace that you're using. And by the way, the process is basically stick your silicon into a furnace. So this is the silicon oxide that comes out of the ground, silica. Um, you stick it into a furnace, you stick it alongside wood chips and coal. By the way, coal is one of the ingredients you use to make it because it's a smelting process, a lot like smelting iron. Um, and then you burn it at really high temperatures. In fact, it's like an electric arc furnace, so it's almost like lightning bolts are going on inside there. Literal, actually, lightning bolts are happening uh, inside these. And, and the issue with sand is there's nothing wrong with its chemical uh, kind of ingredients. Um, the issue is if you put it in there, then it would kind of, the convection forces that, that are kind of going on there, and there is all sorts of different kind of chaotic forces inside there, would mean that the sand lifted up and it gummed up the filters basically which are used to try and extract some of the, the fumes and the heat so sand just won't work just for pragmatical kind of engineering reasons rather than anything more highfalutin than that yeah and you need big kind of fist sized chunks of what they call quartzite which is basically sand but it's just you know crystallized into this uh into this quartz form so actually yeah. your, your silicon chip begins with a material that is used for work surfaces rather than sand. I don't, you know, it's no more or less poetic, but it is an interesting thing that 
people at the top end. And like you say, there are lots of lots of these presentations out there, including from places like Intel, saying it all begins with sand, which is just wrong mm. because you know it, that's not how you make metallurgical silicon, which is in turn what you need to make silicon wafers. Yeah. Um, the chemical so yeah, it's kind of interesting. Is correct, but the uh, the com- composition's the, uh, fine. It's it's, it's the structure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so now we've got our ninety nine point nine percent pure um, metallurgical silicon that is yeah. smashed up into pieces, and then that's moved yeah, about to ninety eight. I think it's ninety nine point eight or something okay. like that. So yeah, it's or pretty pure by most yeah. by most people's standards. Yeah, and then that's taken to an, another company that then does the polysilicon, right? Like um, you mentioned yeah. in the book, a company called Wacker. Yeah, VACA, a German company, and they, they, I mean, like this, this is one of them. And what I try to do, so, so actually a lot of this is happening in China, but what I tried to do was try and explain the, 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 the different processes. And there are only so many places outside of, uh, outside of China, which, which are doing it. It so happened that at the time I was writing the book, it was, it was COVID. And so I couldn't get into China, even if they would have let me in any, anyway. Mm. Um, but so, yeah, so, so you've made this metallurgical silicon, as it's called. I know it's not a metal. A lot of people, when you say metallurgical silicon, people are like, oh, no, silicon is not a metal. Well, people within the trade call it metallurgical silicon. Uh, and it looks like a metal. And obviously it's a semiconductor, it's somewhere in between, isn't it? Mm. And that then gets carted off to a factory where it undergoes a totally new process to make it even purer. And the process that's usually used is something called the Siemens process. And it kind of involves essentially vaporizing that metallurgical silicon that you've got and then reforming it almost atom by atom uh, onto in these big kind of high pressure machines Wait, at the end, the kind of end product, it looks a little bit like the kind of furred up lime scale you get on a kettle, like an old kettle that had mm. these kind of uh, parts. Um, and then that, that, what looks like the furred up lime scale is actually super pure silicon. So it's what you're trying to do is make it from 99.9% or a bit less percent pure into 99.9999999, yeah. sometimes eight nines, sometimes ten nines. Um, yeah. You're making it super pure so that basically there is nothing but silicon atoms in there. Mm. It's yeah. one of the purest things that humankind has, has ever made. So that's the, that's the Siemens process. Yeah. And then is you it, have, that's polysilicon. Like 10, 10 nines purity. So that's like one yeah. at the absolute limit. So that's one impurity for every 10 billion I, silicon atoms. That's right. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Kind of your head around it. Yeah. It's hard to yeah. wrap your head around it, except to say this is kind of, this is one of the purest things that we are capable of making. You know, it, yeah. it is so, so pure, but it takes yeah. a lot of work to get there. That's a really energy yeah. intensive process. Yeah. And that's polysilicon. And, and so that's step two. Yeah. And that, this is so, um, this is something that has changed. Like we've had the demand for higher and higher purity has changed over the years, because as you say in the book, when the semiconductor industry started, the shapes what we were making were so much bigger that the process would tolerate a, a little bit of impurity. But now when you're building structures where you're potentially only hundreds of atoms wide, if there's even yeah. one atom of impurity within those hundred exactly. atoms, that that transistor might not work. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's it has just dimensions. Yeah. It's just dimensions. Yeah. And yeah, if you're measuring, if you're measuring it in atoms or in angstroms or whatever you might be measuring yeah. it in, but you're getting down to that kind of level, yeah. then one lone rogue atom is enough to, to mess up a circuit. And then, then, so, it, so it matters. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, yeah. isn't it? 
But we're still not ready because that silicon is polysilicon. So it's all the crystal structure is all uh, jumbled up and doesn't make sense. And one thing that I yes. learned when I visited the IHP fab is they have this machine that rotates the wafers um, so that there's a little notch at the bottom and all the notches line up. And I said, what, why is that important? And it, it turns out not only is it important that the crystal structure is completely perfect, but it's in the right orientation so that when they do the processes uh, on the machine, the crystal is always lined up with the machine. Yeah. So what, what do we really do to, to convert that polysilicon into the, the, like the, the crystalline silicon that we need? Yeah. So you've got, you've got your silicon and it is and that, like, I'm not a material scientist. I'm a journalist. So, you know, I, my, 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 my expertise is trying to explain. You're a temporary expert. <laughs> hopefully, I hopefully get them right. Having spoken to lots of people who genuinely are experts, but you know, if there's a mistake that creeps in, you can correct me. So, so basically you've got your polysilicon. It's so pure, but it's, it's, it's a wadge of different crystalline structures and you need to create something that is the perfect atomic structure. Um, so that think of like eggs lined up neatly in their packing case rather mm. than being higgledy-piggledy all over the place. So it's not just purity. You need crystalline structure, a monocrystal structure. Uh, and that's where you go through a new a new process called the Tchaikovsky process. It's this guy, this... Um, yeah, I just about got there. Tchaikovsky. This guy I spoke to, actually, who works in the Tchaikovsky process... Um, he said he said he had to look up how to pronounce it. He works doing it, but he had to look up how to yeah. pronounce it because everyone there just calls it CZ, CZ, because yeah. this is a okay. US, US company. Yeah. So, so they basically, you melt down your polysilicon in, this, in, a, in a super pure um, crucible that is also itself made of a super high type of quartz. We can get back to that if you want to. You melt it down and then... You get a seed crystal, okay, and then you pull up that seed crystal slowly, 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 turning it, rotating it along the way. And what forms beneath it is what's known as a boule. It's like this big, long, quite heavy sausage almost, or, you know, of, of, of silicon. And just because of the way that it is pulled up, it is a perfect crystalline structure, okay? So that's the Tchaikovsky process. It's, again, it happens... At this stage, because you're genuinely worried about impurities, you're so worried about impurities, everything's happening in a vacuum, I think, in like an argon atmosphere. Argon, inside yeah, these kind of, yeah. Yeah, so inside this kind of super pure uh, environment. And what, what results is the thing that, you know, that you've probably seen, um, which is those, those long kind of boules, which is like a kind of sausage, almost like a salami of silicon, mm. except it's not salami. It's the, it's the purest thing in the world. It's purest, but it's also got the most perfect atomic structure. I, th I, I, I yeah. think it's actually the most perfect thing. It's the most perfect thing that humankind is capable of making, or certainly it's up there. And then that's sliced away. So you're, you've got this long thing, and then that's sliced away into, into very, very thin um, slices, and each of them cylindrical. And that cylindrical nature is just because of the nature of the Tchaikovsky process. It's because you're pulling it up and turning it along the way, uh, and you're pulling it out of this crucible, so it's, it just happens to be round. Now, that, that thing that is sliced at the end, that is your silicon wafer. And by now, you know, those, those atoms that came out of the mine, you know, my, my, the one I looked at was in Spain. Um, the, the, these kind of finding the quartzite, it's, it's not, not every country has quartzite, but it's not like it's mm. totally rare. But that silicon has been around the world potentially a few times. It, is, it has certainly had a massive set of 
energetic transformations to turn it into a silicon wafer. Yeah. And this is I all before the wafer has got to the fab. When I was reading the book and I was counting, it seemed to me like it had been turned from a liquid back to a solid three different times. I think that's right, yeah. And, and, I, th and I think actually in some of the, so the Siemens process, I think at that I think it also kind of gets vaporized. So I have no idea whether it's actually kind of almost becoming gaseous at some point along the way. Um, yeah. There's some very saline, uh, which is kind of like, I think, a gaseous form of silicon that it becomes. But, yeah. but all is to say, you know, we, we kind of do fixate, understandably, because a lot of that's where a lot of the know-how is and a lot of the value added is in what's happening at TSMC or Intel or wherever it is yeah. in the fab. But by the time it's got there, it, it, you've had so much work going on in it. And it's not easy to do this stuff. You know, there's only so many factories in the world that can do the Tchaikovsky process. And there's only so many places that can do the Siemens process and get you up to 10 nines. And China, although they've put a lot into this, and they're probably getting there now, certainly at the time I was researching this, most people who were in the silicon wafer business were saying, China is not there yet in terms of making the super purest, the most pure things. And obviously, like you were saying earlier, Matt, if, if you're going to make a two nanometer dimension semiconductor, you do need 10 nines. You need something that's super pure. Um, yeah. it's, 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 it's kind of amazing stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, it's incredible, and I I really like the um, the kind of tip of the iceberg story because it, as you say, it's very, it's kind of the sexy part is the lithography. Then everyone focuses yes. on AMSL and the incredible um, lithography steppers, but you can't do that until you've got the silicon wafer in the fab, and there's this enormous story that is like not really uh, well well oh. spoken of. There is one no, great video not. I'd recommend people watch, which is um, by Asianometry, and it's called the humble silicon wafer and it talks about a lot about these processes but there's still all this other story about the the mining and the fact that it's it's mm. not sand and it's these this um the bigger chunks of uh and the, silicon yeah. that you only learned from reading your book and the people at the mine in the same way that the people in the fab don't really know where their silicon comes from the people in the mine a lot of them don't really know or actually care that much that mm. the piece of rock that they're just pulling out of the ground is going to end up as a part of a smartphone because that same piece of rock could end up as part of a kitchen work surface, you know, yeah. and they yeah. just, their job is done when it leaves the, the mine. And that's, that's that. And that's, that I guess is the wonder of, of modern markets where a lot of people just do their job and somehow what eventuates is, is an extraordinary bit of technology, mm. but yeah. it's quite nice to sudden occasionally have this, this view all along the supply chain because then that means that you you know you can pick up your smartphone and say well a bit of this began as a lump of rock that was pulled out of the ground you know it's in seems spain. like it's yeah. kind of yeah in spain or indeed somewhere around the world it's it's that's that's what i find kind of exciting about it yeah so i think i want to um talk a little bit more about the supply chain stuff um but if you're if you're watching this video and you're interested in what happens after the wafer gets to the factory, then check out my recent factory tour to IHP in Germany, where I uh, visited a factory and saw what happens to actually get the MOSFETs on the on the wafer. Um, so I, think I recommend one, one, it. I watched it and enjoyed it. Thanks, Ed. Um, <laughs> I'd like to. So I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about the kind of the darker side. So. And this is one of the things that comes up in your book as well, is that we don't really talk about emissions or pollution. Um, but one of the figures you gave in the book is just to get to that first stage 
of purity, the 99.8%, is 3,000 times the energy cost of cement. Do you have any idea of the amount of energy it takes to like actually end up with the, the final silicon wafer? Because you're having to go through this melting and recrystallization process three different times. It must be a huge amount of energy input. There's, there's a couple of papers. The, the, the striking thing is that people haven't have only really started to try to count this quite recently. So, so I was, I was quite surprised that you know that you couldn't really very easily find the carbon footprint of a of a silicon chip but people have been working on that in fact there's a paper I like to, I'll, I'll, I'll send the link so that we can kind of add it to this uh mm. to, to the notes here um where where people are now starting to work that out in short though it is a lot of energy going into a going into kind of making metallurgical silicon and in turn making that into the, the silicon wafers that we then end up using and then it's also quite a lot of energy at the fab as well and the, also the water footprint is quite high as you know there's lots yeah. of water used at fabrication plants and so it is very energy intensive and, and obviously if you're using coal for a lot of that that energy conversion which you know certainly in china people are um then it's going to be really carbon intensive and as i was saying you, you actually in a chemical sense you can't Right now, we don't have a good way of taking quartzite out of the ground and processing it into metallurgical silicon without using coking coal. So you actually have to use coal, not just to, to power the furnace. Actually, that coal is used for chemical reasons because the coal, in the same way as coking coal is really good at making iron, so taking iron ore and turning it into pig iron, which is like a much purer form of iron, the, the, the coal there is basically doing the job of grabbing the oxygen atoms off the the ore and then yeah. take it taking them and kind of punting them out of the, the chimney in yeah. the form of carbon dioxide taking the silicon dioxide and turning it into the silicon exactly yeah. it's the same thing with 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 so you still need coal for that and so right now we don't really have a good way of making silicon chips without actually at least some embodied carbon emissions that are both energetic okay so the the, the gas or whatever you're using to power these furnaces and also chemical, and that's the trickier bit. Like mm. one of the, the subjects, as you know, I look at in the book is concrete. Concrete, trying to solve how we make concrete without carbon emissions is going to be one of the biggest things in terms of getting to net zero because you just can't make cement, which is the main ingredient in concrete. You can't make it without big carbon emissions. Not from about half of the carbon emissions come, from, again, like I say, from that chemical process, the, the, you know, getting getting oxygen out and using carbon is a really good way of doing it because it just happens carbon's brilliant at certain things um so anyway the, the the long and the short of it is that it is quite similar to making steel making making the silicon that goes into these mm. chips is quite similar to making steel however we're doing it at far 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 smaller quantities yeah than we are doing for steel so per chip you know it's going to be pretty small um you know the carbon footprint and given how small those chips are you know the, the carbon footprint per weight of chip is 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 relatively small probably a greater footprint is is you know things like server costs in the long run we're going to have to kind of wrestle with that you know the the, the particularly as ai becomes more you know important and intensive the amount of global carbon emissions that come and energy the energy costs for running a computer the energy cost of running a computer and running servers and yeah. cloud services is really yeah. high it's about one percent of global energy consumption right now and it's probably going to go up quite a bit 
Um, it would be interesting so, to see where the breakdown is of like the energy used like to make the chip and then the energy the chip uses during its lifetime. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good question. And I, and again, I think people are starting to get there. But the striking thing is, it's actually that's a really recent thing. It is a really people have been looking at carbon emissions for other things for a while. But I just don't think people have been spending much time thinking about the how how these processes happen and therefore of what the environmental cost is is something that's only kind of started to to be looked into more recently. Okay. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about um, supply chains in general. I, I, as far as I know, the supply chain, because it, we just talk at the moment, we're just talking about silicon wafers, but there's all these other important chemicals that are also needed as part of the mm. semiconductor industry. Um, and then once you've got the chips in it, you've got to do something with them. So then you've got the PCBs, you've got the assembly, you've got to put it in a product, and then you're finally ready to sell it. So do you think that the semiconductor supply chains are the, the longest in the world? They are, they are definitely among the longest that I've encountered. Because like with other heard, things... I haven't seen anything I think is longer, but... I've not. No, I, I don't. Know. I don't. I, th I think they must be. And, and, and see, it's not just length, it's also the kind of depth of it. So at each stage, like you're saying, at each stage, it's not just the company doing the Chakrowski process that's involved. You know, they, they have their own providers. Own suppliers. Of, yeah. Yeah. Like their own suppliers. With AMSL and they're the people that supply the lasers exactly. or the lenses. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, with ASML, you can go down that rabbit hole. And then this is the same thing with going down the rabbit hole of the people who make the machines that allow you to do the Tchaikovsky yeah. process, which is the yeah. equivalent of ASML for, yeah. for that particular field. Um, and it's the same thing with the people who make the crucibles that allow you to do the Tchaikovsky process. Yeah. That, that's a particular type of, of, of company. There's an American company, actually, that is, is not maybe not the global monopoly for that, but... They, there's an American company which is very big in that. I think they're called Linton. Sibelco? Sibelco? Well, so the Sibelco, who are the company who get it out of the ground. So there's only okay. one mine. This is this is the other kind of mind-blowing thing. Yeah. There is only one mine in the world. Um, well, it's kind of like one area with, with two companies working on it, one mine, which is in North Carolina, a place called Spruce Pine. It is the one place they have found in the world that has large enough quantities of high-purity quartz that you can be used in the crucibles, which are allowing you to do this Tchaikovsky process. So it's not like the silicon... It is actually sand, as I, as I understand it. It's not like that sand ends up in your silicon chip, but you need that sand to provide the crucible for your silicon chip to be made, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, because obviously and if that crucible has any impurities in it then that will leach into the milk precisely precisely and, and and you can only you know i think you up until recently you're only really able to use that crucible one time so each new time you were making a new silicon bull you had to have a new crucible and that oh. sand all had to come from spruce pine and like i say there's there's one place where you can get it from in america and there's only a small handful of companies capable of making the crucibles. And one of those is, is, is I think, this one called Linton. Um, and they're all quite secretive. And I, you know, spoke to as many people as I could, but a lot of people, it's, there's a bit of kind of cloak and dagger about it. Uh, because why would these people talk to anyone else when they've got the global monopoly for X, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So one, one, I don't know if you know, but if we can make silicon up to... Um, ten nines purity. Can we not also do the same thing with the the crucibles? Why does it have to be mined from this one such specific mine? I think you probably could in, in practice. 
it's just that it's cost the it, it would just be yeah it would just cost a, a hell of a lot more mm-hmm. and so you know the, the the big thing you're doing there in terms of cost and focus is the um you know it's 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 making the silicon chip and if you're then yeah. suddenly having to to kind of devote as much of your attention to making the crucible in which it's going to be made, then the cost of your silicon chips is going to multiply potentially because mm. you're having to do so much extra work. So like a lot of this stuff, and this is a striking thing, you know, I, I've looked across all of these different materials. So like copper, you know, there are other things which are better conductors of electricity than copper, like silver. And you could get kind of, you know, nanotubes, you can, you can get nanomaterials, which are better conductors of electricity than copper. But you've got to think about, you know, whether that's, you, you can't just build, replace the entire world's wiring with graphene. You know, it would be like incredibly expensive and difficult. And also graphene's not that good for, you know, in, in other ways, copper's quite good in other ways. And, and so part of this is also a pragmatic thing. Um, concrete is not just an amazing building material. It's also, it's also kind of really cheap and it's really easy to make. Like it's easy to mix and yeah. lay concrete, and that's why it's taken over the world. Iron is just really, really good at what it does. It's not the strongest thing in terms of its kind of, you know, by by weight, but it's just we know how to make a shed load of it, and we do. Mm. And so you, you kind of encounter these things to ch- to change the world. It's not just good enough to kind of make something in a lab and for it to be really good. And we can make really good things in a lab, and 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 they're, they're amazing. You just need for it to be able to be disseminated amongst everyone, and that's certainly what we do with semiconductors. And uh, that's so. So yeah, what your, your your question is a good one. I imagine you could probably synthesize a lot a lot of this stuff, but could you then kind of you know have as many chips as you kind of needed to keep the world economy going? Maybe yeah. not. If the, if the price of the wafer doubled, what would that do to the the end result? Like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I think one like a good place to end on is talking about um, the idea of uh, sovereign supply chains. So we've seen like this enormous investment over the in 2023 with the Chips Act in the US and the EU, combined hundred yes. billion dollars investment. And part yes. of this has come out, as you said at the beginning, from the kind of concerns about the the global the global supply chain and how vulnerable it is to a single pinch point, for example. Once the wafers arrive at to be made, there's like only a, a few places that make the cutting edge logic processors. I mean, only thirty percent of chips are logic for servers or for, for iPhones or whatever, right. but they're all made in Taiwan in TSMC, and there's, there's just one yep. this one tiny island that can do it. So there's been yep. this one of the reasons of this uh, huge hundred billion dollar investment is wanting the eu and the us wanting to have kind of supply chain sovereignty do you think that that's a achievable goal i mean i think it's no is the short answer i just don't see how it is it's it's it is such a complex supply chain it has so much not not just length as we were discussing but that depth so you know there there are definitely uh thousands tens of thousands potentially of different companies from many different countries around the world that are engaged in this whether it's when you're looking at who's providing the chemicals that are then going into your kind of you know abrasion processes in your fab who's providing the the different machinery who's providing each of the different parts that go into it there's there's such a multiplicity of different 
types of expertise that are located in many different parts of the world that I just think it would be nigh on impossible to, to locate everything in a single country. And that's not really the way that the world has ever worked. We have, we have definitely had different blocks uh, before. So you didn't have the Cold War where um, there were the, these, these supply chains didn't bestride the whole globe, but they bestrode kind of continents uh, and areas um, and like-minded allies. And we may well move to that kind of a world. And it's certainly also the case that when you look at these supply chains, the one country which has the most of the stuff is actually America. So clearly the US doesn't have your, you know, it has not yet cracked two nanometer processors. Intel hasn't yet cracked two nanometers or indeed three nanometers. It hasn't worked out EUV, um, but it will presumably at some point. Um, and when you look at those multiplicity of different companies all along the supply chain from the quarry through to the very end, the U.S. is doing is pretty well placed versus compared with China, you know, compared with most other parts of the world. But by the same token, it would still need to get ASML machinery, and that comes from the Netherlands. The ASML machinery has lenses made by Zeiss in Germany. Uh, it has lasers made by Trump, which is also a German company. Um, and when you're looking at these things, they are they are tapestries of different technologies from from all over the world. So I just think it would be nigh on impossible. And that's before you consider the economic cost okay. of trying to take so much expertise that is built up in a certain place and try and replicate it. You know, that is such an expensive operation to mm. do. So I think it would be I think it would be very difficult yes, indeed. And but that is the kind of logic of, you know, the, the, the politics right now is a lot of people are talking about re reshoring. The interesting thing when you look at what's actually happening, whether it's with computer chips or elsewhere, is quite a lot of that reshoring has mostly been talk rather than action, and we're we're yet to see dramatic changes. That's not to say we're, we're, it won't manifest in the coming years because these are slow moving processes, um, and certainly with energy, with things like battery manufacture, the US is very very determined to try to bring a lot of that back. Um, but with things like chips, I can well imagine how you might have like-minded allies being able to to share enormous supply chains, much as you did during the Cold War. Um, but I just can't see how it all could be in one country, even in, in the yeah. US. Okay, fantastic. Very interesting conversation. Thank you, Ed. And if you're interested in uh, understanding more about the complex tapestries that we all depend on for our daily lives, then I really recommend giving Ed's book a read. It's called Material World, and uh, you can get it from wherever you get your books from. So thanks again, Ed. Really appreciate your time. Thank you.